Good morning. A reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. So last week we started a, a new series on this book of First Thessalonians, and uh, I think there was some snow last week, and so a few of you guys decided to stay home and bundle up, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, I'm glad that you stayed home and stayed safe because it was not that fun driving in it. So, uh, but I do encourage you, if you weren't here and you haven't already, to go back and listen to uh, the sermon from last week because it's going to provide a lot of context uh, for this letter. It's going to help uh, set the stage for ultimately where we're going. In, in this letter, uh, we're ultimately looking at one of Paul's most encouraging letters, actually his most encouraging letter of all the letters he writes throughout the New Testament. Uh, this is to a church that he dearly loves. He's very encouraged by them. He's encouraged by their way of life, how they're clinging to faith in Jesus. This is the church that he calls uh, a model church uh, among all the other churches, all the other places that he's been to. This is the church that's a, a model church that he can't stop talking about. Last week we talked about how they were a church marked by holy living produced by faith, by missional living produced by by love, and ultimately by eternal living produced by hope. And last week we ended with this question that I hope you've been thinking about throughout this week. It's this question of what do we want to be known for as a church. We looked at this church in First Thessalonians, and we saw what they were known for. But the question that, that I want us to, to ask ourselves is, what do we want to be known for? Do we want to just be known for being the church that meets in the old Air Force Base building? No, we should want to be a, a church that's marked by the same things that this Thessalonian church is marked by. Uh, in my small group, we had a great discussion about this on Sunday night, and we, we talked through some practical ways that maybe we could be some change in that. And so we came up with some ideas, and, and we're working to, to implement those, not as a church-wide solution, just like, hey, we're some people who love Jesus, who are part of this church. How can we be part of what God is doing and what God wants to do? And so I encourage you, as you think about that question, not to just think about it from a theoretical mindset, but ultimately think about it. If we're looking to, to find out what do we want to be known for as a church, that should require some introspection, but ultimately some action that comes out of that. 
That's the whole goal of this series, that, that we would see this church in Scripture, this Thessalonian church who is highly celebrated, who is talked well of, and that ultimately we would be convicted a little bit uh, about how we don't measure up to this church, but that we wouldn't just stay in that place of conviction, but then we would seek the Lord. That we would seek the Lord for his empowerment by the Spirit so that we could become like them, being like this model church. Amen? All right. You guys got to get a little faster with the amens this morning. You got to make sure you're awake and all the, the dust is off and shaken off. All right. Well, let's pray so that we can ask for the Lord's help in that. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. God, it's no small thing that, that we get to come together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Those we know, those we don't know yet. We get to worship you, that we get to read and study your word. God, help us to, to never lose the wonder of that. This is something special where we get to gather together as children of God, as beloved brothers and sisters of our Father. And help us this morning, as we dive into your word, help us to surrender all of our other mindsets, all of our other notions, Lord, and let it be your word that marks us and transforms us. Holy Spirit, we need you in our lives. We need you to make your word come alive in us, to convict us, to empower us, to send us out from this place. In Christ's name, amen. So as we dive into this next section this morning, it's going to be very gospel heavy. And as we dive into this, we're going to see the supreme place that the gospel takes in the life of the church, as well as the fruit of that true belief in the gospel message. And so we're going to be going through this verse by verse as we're going through uh, this letter. And we're going to start with this first verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.4. I'm going to read it again for us. For we know, this is Paul, Silas, Timothy writing to this church. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And now if you are the type of person who likes to think about Scripture as you're reading it, this word chosen can create all sorts of questions about who God is. It can create questions about uh, his nature, his character, questions about his sovereignty, our free will. If, if God has chosen us, is there any reason for us to respond and do things ourselves? Is it all God? Is it all us? Is it some amalgamation of that? It creates some questions for us to ultimately answer. And what I hope that we can do is as we dive into this more, that we can gain some clarity on maybe what the apostle is talking about as we read through this. And I want to state this up front, that there are multiple ways to think about this, all right? There are multiple ways to interpret the idea of calling an election. There are theologians and pastors and friends of mine who I highly respect who are wrong, who come to a different conclusion than I do, but they are still beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I, I want to make that very clear from the get-go as we're talking about this idea of calling an election that you may disagree with my interpretation of this, and that's okay. This isn't one of those primary issues where if you believe the wrong thing on this and you come to a different conclusion than I do, then you're a heretic. Not me, it'd be you. 
No, that's not, that's not it at all. We can agree to disagree on this. It's not a primary issue where one belief is orthodox, the other one is heresy. It's something where we can remain brothers and sisters in Christ, remain in fellowship. So with that said, knowing that there are some differences of opinion on this, I, I'm going to present you uh, what ultimately I come to the conclusion on. I, I want to try and do this in a biblical way, a, a biblical theology of this, while also noting that we can't do like three hours of coursework this morning. And so uh, keep that in mind. I encourage you to study it out on your own. But ultimately, we need to ask this question. What does it mean to be chosen by God? What does it mean to be chosen by God? Well, if you have spent a lot of time in the Bible, this idea of being chosen or being elect is really a central theme throughout Scripture. All throughout Scripture, we see God selecting or choosing certain families. That's what God does throughout Scripture. He chooses certain families. Noah's family is chosen. Abraham's family is chosen, and ultimately Israel's family is chosen. And this idea, I think, is what is key for us to understand election in the New Testament. God doesn't change his mind from the Old Testament to the New Testament, choosing people groups and then choosing individuals. He remains a God who is the same, who doesn't change. He remains choosing certain groups of people. As he chooses these certain groups of people, they ultimately have special status in his plan of salvation. He elects for certain people to have a plan and a place in, or sorry, certain groups of people to have a plan and a place in his idea of salvation. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see Israel being chosen to be the people of God, but then we see people that are outside of Israel being grafted in all throughout Scripture. We see God taking careful time and attention to saying, these are the people that I have chosen, the people that belong to this people group, but there is still room for others to be grafted into that as well. That type of understanding is important for us as we read through the New Testament. God's plan is still made manifest through family. That's what his plan was throughout the Old Testament. It's what his plan is throughout the New Testament as well. But it's a bit different as we get to the New Testament. Because the type of family that God chooses in the New Testament is all rooted in Jesus. It's all rooted in Jesus' family. That which is elect is Jesus and all who belong to him. Those who are in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ enjoys special status before God as the elect in Christ. And we saw this earlier as we looked at this, those who are in Christ, in in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Father. It's that which makes it special, being in, united, grafted in, joined together with Christ. God has elected this certain group of people, that is the church, the family of God, those with Jesus as the head. And anyone who is joined to that group by grace, through faith, has become part of the chosen people, have become part of the elect in God, become part of that family that God has established. God has not uh, chosen certain individuals before time to say, these are the ones that will be saved, and these are the ones I've destined for destruction. That's not what I read throughout Scripture. 
I don't see uh, God being like that throughout Scripture where he says, this one's in, I've chosen him before the beginning of the world, this one's out before the beginning of the world. What I see throughout Scripture is a God who desires all people to be saved. And it doesn't go with God's character to say, I've ordained Peter. Sorry, Peter, you were right there in his blue shirt. It stood out. I've ordained Peter for destruction. Sorry. I mean, just... Right? But like when we talk about that, like even John Calvin himself, okay, we're going off the notes for a moment, theology for just a second. Even John Calvin himself, as he's talking about this idea of double predestination where where God has ordained some for life and some for destruction, he's like, this is vile. It is. It's because it, it misses the understanding that God hasn't chosen individuals, but he's chosen groups. Chosen Jesus Christ and all who belong to Jesus to be part of that elect group. Anyone who is in Christ is saved. Anyone who is out of Christ is not saved. 2 Peter 3.9 is that beautiful text that shows us that God desires for none to perish. And even in that text in 2 Peter 3.9, Peter gives us this beautiful picture. And he's like, this is why God is patient. This is why God is patient, because he desires that none would perish. And that raises the question, well, if if the reason why God is patient and coming back is because he desires for none to perish, then that doesn't sit right with the idea of these people and those people. It sits right with the idea that, that the gospel goes forth and that we are to respond to the gospel, that we are to bring make our home in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Okay, water time. We need to remember who our God is. Our God is the good father of Luke 15. He's the patient father. The one who's waiting, even though we've gone astray, even though we've chosen a different type of life, even though we've chosen our own ways and we've squandered our life. He's that patient, loving father who is waiting for us. Who runs to us in the distance puts a new robe on us, puts a ring on our finger, kills the, slaughter, kills the fattened calf, and throws a good old barbecue for us. That is who our God is. In verse 4, we can note again the corporate nature of election as Paul is speaking to the church family, not individuals. He's speaking to an entire church, not individuals. He speaks to Adelphos, or, which is the plural for either brothers or more inclusively brothers and sisters as the NIV does or the NASB 20 does. Uh, he's already noted in verses we studied last week who this church is. They're in Christ. They're part of the family of God. And here he reinforces that again with this, this lovely title, Beloved by God. You feel that, church? You feel that you're beloved by God? Because if you are in Christ, you are loved by God, beloved by Him. So loved. That's how Christ sees you. It's how God sees you. God is a good Father who loves His children. He's not the angry, curmudgeonly Father up there like you did things wrong again. No, He's a good Father who loves us who delights in us, who wants us. It's something that, that we need in our head. He's so moved by his love for us that he sent his son. 
That's how much he, he loves those that he created, that he sent his son, and that whoever believes in him, not those who were elected before time began, but whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As a church, we can never forget that. Never forget that the church is founded and held together by the grace of God born of his love. That's the reason that we're gathered here, because of the grace of God born of his love. And that's the image that we need of God. It's the one that the Thessalonian church has in their minds as they go through life. It's the reason that Paul can, can be so encouraging to them because they have such a view of God and who he is that he has utterly transformed their lives. They've submitted everything to him. They found themselves in Christ and they say, I don't want to be in anything else. I just want to be in Christ. Let's keep reading uh, verses 5 through 6, and we're going to include verse 4 in there as we read this. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because, or for, our gospel came to you you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in verse 4, we know that God has chosen you, and now he's telling us why he knows that, or how he knows that to be true. It was through their faith in the gospel message. It was through their faith in the gospel message. And this gospel message that went forth in front of the Thessalonians wasn't just with words. It wasn't just like Jesus lived and he died and he was resurrected and all who who call on his name will be saved. It was that, but it was more than that as well. It was with words and it was with power. What kind of power? What is this this power that that Paul talks about? Well, if we went back to to Acts 17, there weren't any uh, recordings of miracles happening in that. Were there miracles? Maybe. But what we do see in the context of this is the transformed life of Paul and Silas. We see the power of their living, that power that fully marked them. They saw what the gospel could do, the power of the gospel in individuals. They could see this man who was persecuting the church, who was dragging people out of the church, who was fully against the church, seeing his life fully changed, seeing his life submitted to Jesus and being made new. That is power. I think sometimes we can get so fixated that we want to see something mighty from God. We want to see miracles and we want to see healings. Amen. Let's see those things, but let's never forget the miracle of changed lives. That is power. That is transformation. These preachers that come to the Thessalonian church, Paul and Silas, they don't come as hypocrites. They don't come as people who preach one thing and live another. Their lives testified to the power of the gospel of transformation. They fully lived this. It showed how the gospel could regenerate, how the gospel could transform. And this was compelling to these people. 
It was compelling to the Thessalonians, and they believed. They put their faith in the gospel message. And I love that Paul describes what that belief looks like for us. He tells us what they did. He says that they became imitators of them and of the Lord. The gospel had power in Paul and Silas, and it has, got, it has power in the lives of these people in Thessalonica. Their lives are fully submitted to Jesus. They become imitators of Paul and Silas, but ultimately of the Lord. And this is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It actually means to follow him. I know that's crazy. But to be a follower of Jesus means to follow him. And that's what Paul highlights about this church here. They have become imitators of Jesus. The word disciple can be more likened to being an apprentice. It's someone who is following and learning the way so that they can ultimately go and live it themselves. When Paul is describing this church's faith, it's not a wishy-washy, heart-only endeavor. It's not this, this saying a prayer and being like, oh yes, Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done, and now let me go back to my former way of life. That's not how he describes this church. Not how he describes their conversion. No, he describes that they have turned away from everything else. They've put their, their faith in Jesus and they love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a holistic turning away. Turning away from their former lives. A turning away from sin and all the things that held them captive. And a turning to Jesus. A turning to His way. And I think this is why Paul can so matter-of-factly say that he knows that this church is elect. Because he can see the evidence of their, con- of their conversion with his own eyes. He can see that they were once living like those who were enemies of God, but now they're living as people who have been redeemed by God. He knows that these people have given their lives to Christ the same way that he did. His life was changed. Their life is changed. Paul sees the power of the gospel at work in them. I think today, too often we make the gospel something that it's not. And we could do a a whole series on false gospels that, that we believe at times I think maybe perhaps that, that gospel that has most invaded the church is a powerless gospel. A gospel that says, I believe Jesus for forgiveness, but I don't believe Jesus for transformation. I believe that Jesus will, will just look over my sin all the while I'm still dead in my sin. And I don't think that's ever what God had in mind with the gospel. In fact, a belief that never produces a changed life is not true belief. If you say that Jesus is Lord, but then your life says that I am Lord, you haven't put true faith in Jesus. And that's that's hard for us to hear because too often I see this, and I have family members, I have parents who would say that they're Christians, who would say that they've made that proclamation, but their lives don't do it. And I weep for them. 
Friends, we have to stop saying, oh yeah, they're, they're a Christian. Are they? Now, I'm not saying that if you struggle with sin at all, and you're not saved, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you have no interest in seeing yourselves delivered from sin, then I think you need to spend some time with the Lord. If you have no desire to put away your sin, to walk away from it, if you have no desire to live a transformed new life, then I don't know that Christ has fully come into your heart. I don't know that you've repented and put your faith in Jesus and his lordship. Our sin, we gotta, we got to remember this. Why was Jesus crucified? For our sin. For us. For all the, the wrong that we had done. For all those times that we had gone astray. That is why Jesus was crucified. And we're like, God, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. But I still want my cake and to eat it too. I still want that forgiveness and that, that love. And thank you for dying on the cross. But I don't care that you died on the cross because I'm going to keep living the same way. That's what we do when we're interested in that type of life. Imitating Christ by dying to sin and self while being resurrected to new life is how one knows that they are saved and elect. Dying to the former way of life and coming alive in Christ. Believing in Christ also means believing in His commands. It means believing in the totality of who he is. And these two things are, are inexplicably linked together with Jesus himself saying, and we talked about this, uh, I think, last year in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. You love me, keep my commands is what Jesus says. And what Paul notes here about this church is that's what this church did. They were a church who received the gospel with joy that was born of the Spirit. They laid down those former things. They stopped all of their idolatry, everything else that they had formerly put at the, the premier place in their lives, and they stepped away from all of that, and they put Jesus in the highest place. And what Paul notes about this church is that they had that joy born of the Spirit even in the midst of adversity. Even in the midst of great pain and trials. That's what Jesus does. We need to remember that, that Jesus is the prize. It's not this life that's the prize. It's not the things that he can give us that is the prize. Jesus is the prize. It's not health. It's not wealth. It's not happiness. It's not a nation that looks a certain way. Jesus is the prize. He is the prize. And I think what this church in Thessalonica has done is they've discovered that. And they're overwhelmed with joy. They, they know their God. They know their Savior. And because of that, they're like, I count everything a loss, just as Paul did. I count 
everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. They're willing to put it all aside and say, more of you, Lord, less of me. That, that prayer and cry of John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. Right, let's look at these, these last verses here. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Here, Paul continues to build up the church by speaking highly of their way of life. He calls them that model church that we talked about last week. And why are they a model church again? Is it because they're special? No, it's because of what the gospel has done inside of them. It's because of what God has done, what he's doing, and what he will continue to do through them. See, if we can, if we can understand this, uh, people transformed by the gospel are a testimony to all who encounter us. That's what Paul highlights about this church. He's like, Paul, remember Paul, he's going around to all of these places, all of these different regions. And Paul, when he gets there, he starts preaching the gospel to them. And they're like, hey, Paul, do you remember that, that church in Thessalonica? And Paul's like, yeah, I, I was there. But all these people have heard the good news of what God had done in a certain people. That can be us. That God can do such a work in us, that it can be a testimony to those who encounter us. Everyone that encounters the message of the Thessalonians, they're encouraged. They're encouraged and they're excited because they're like, this is real. The gospel is real. God is really saving those who are far away. God is really transforming lives. They're people that were on the outside and now they're on the inside. People who were cut off but now are grafted in. People who are joined to the family of God. No longer dead in their trespasses. No longer worshiping idols. They now worship the one true God. The one who loves them and gave his life for them. Paul also highlights how they're encouraged by how the Thessalonians continue to live in eager expectation that Jesus will return. They continue to live their lives in light of that. In light of God's Son who was raised from the dead, who will return and rescue them from wrath. They've put all of their eggs in one basket. They say that Jesus is enough for, for this life right now and that he's enough for the life to come and we are going to wait on him. We're not going to try and make life about something else. We're going to make life about him. And all of this, all of this happens because of the gospel. All of this happens because of who our God is and what he's done. 
Jesus is God. Always existed, forever a part of the Trinity, forever before anything was created, loving the Father and being loved by the Father. He sees our state. He sees how we've gone astray, how we've continued to miss the mark, how we've continually fallen short. And he says, I will go. This is God himself enthroned in the highest heaven, sees our sorry state and says, I will go. I will make a way for them. And he goes and he, and he puts on flesh. He leaves his throne in heaven. He leaves the angels that are singing his praises 24-7. And he comes and he puts on flesh. And we just went through this season and we still have all the decorations. And that's why they're up, just to make this point. He's come for us. Put on flesh for us. He lives this sort of life that we look at and anyone looking at how Jesus lived, and it's incredible. He lives this, this perfect life where, where he's not like a, a person who's like done really great things and he's like, okay, I've arrived and now let me assemble all the best of the best around me. No, as we look at Jesus' life, he's constantly dining with sinners, dining with the outcasts. Even looking at his disciples, none of them are qualified. And yet this is who Jesus continues to seek after. He lives this life. He, he preaches the good news of the gospel that the kingdom of God has come near. He shows that he is above all things through, through miracles and healings. He, he shows who he is. He, he teaches. He says that before Abraham existed, I am he shows that he is God. Though innocent, though he never does anything wrong, he's rejected. He's despised. Convicted to die. He's tortured, whipped within an inch of his life. And then, just to cap it all off, if that wasn't enough, can he just be killed in private? No. He receives the ultimate object of scorn, a rebel's cross, reserved for those to inflict the most amount of pain, not just a physical pain, but emotional pain. You're hung naked for everyone to see. And this is what... Jesus endures for you, for me, because of his love. And as he is the hair hung upon the tree, he becomes a curse. He becomes sin for us. He takes on our, our sin and our shame and all of our wrongdoing and all of our idolatry and all of that. He takes that upon himself, satisfying God's wrath. The wrath that was reserved for us. The wrath that we deserve. And it's poured out upon Jesus. And as we look at that, we're like, yeah, that sounds great. But, but then as we look at the scriptures, we see this is exactly what was prophesied. He bore our sins in his body that by his wounds we might be healed. 
God loves you, friends. His death wasn't the final word. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And the reason this is so necessary is he doesn't just die for our sins, but he reveals the power of who he is, that he is satisfied. He has satisfied all the requirements. He reigns victorious. He's raised in victory. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. There is victory in Jesus' resurrection. And then the beauty of all of this is that he invites each and every one of us to him. What he's been doing all throughout his ministry, and he doesn't stop doing it after his death and resurrection. He invites all to come to him, to throw our cares upon him, to throw our worries upon him, and especially to throw our sin upon him. As he has redeemed us, he has reconciled us to the Father, and he is the only way. He says, come to me. If anyone would come and be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's a call that, that Jesus gives. He says, surrender everything and come find yourself in me. And that can, can be one of those things where it feels really hard, but then when we think about it, it's great news. We no longer have to figure it out. We no longer have to make ourselves good enough. Instead, we can find all of our life in Jesus. We can find forgiveness and identity and purpose and grace and mercy. Jesus alone is the key to all of that. The gospel alone is the key to all of that. We can only be saved by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus. It's the only way of salvation. There's nothing else. So getting back to this Thessalonian church, the only reason that they're exemplary, the only reason that they're an example is because they have trusted in and been transformed by the gospel. That's what makes them special, that they have surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I heard one preacher say many years ago, God took their mess and turned it into a message. He took everything that was wrong within them, all of their idolatry, all of their sin, all of their shame, all of the things that could be spoken ill of them, and God uses that as a testimony to all of his saving power, of his transformation. That's what our God does. It's what he always has done. It's what he always will do. He comes to us while we're dead in our sins. While there's nothing good about us, Nothing that that is like, God's like, yeah, that's great. While we are dead in our sins, living living as enemies, serving idols, chasing after all the things that he despises, he still offers us his grace. Even then, even now. And as we accept this gospel, 
As we surrender ourselves and say, God, I can't do it. I am not able to do this on my own. I need you. It's only through you. What God does is he comes into our lives and he transforms us. As the song says that we sing, he turns graves into gardens. He turns all of the the things inside of us that are unlovely into lovely things. He redeems us and reconciles us and sanctifies us. He breathes life into that which was dead. That which was revolting to God. And this is love that is unfathomable. And it's why Paul elsewhere says, if only we could, we could understand. And he prays for the church to understand. Because if we could understand this, it would change everything. If we could understand what God has done, who he is, it would change everything. This is love. God has done this for us. Praise God. Praise God that we are loved by him. And let that that praise not just be one of those things where we're like, yes, God has done it, amen, hallelujah, but let it be something that bursts forth into every area of our life. And so as we wrap up, I know I've already gone long. There's this one phrase that Paul says in verse 8. The Lord's message ring out from you. And I can't help but wonder what message rings out from among us. What is the message of our life? What do people hear about us? What do people observe about our lives after spending time with us? Do our lives preach the gospel? Does our conduct reveal to them that Jesus is Lord? That the gospel is true, that he does transform. Do we speak in such a way to tell of God's faithfulness and grace and mercy that he has lavished upon us? Do we tell the world, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was God's enemy, but now I'm his child. Do we speak that to the world around us? Oh, church, I pray that our souls would be lit aflame. Pray that our, our dry hearts would come alive, that our spirits would resound like this church in Thessalonica, that we would be a church whose lives are lived for Christ and so that our community and world would develop that transformational relationship with Jesus. Let a sound resound from us. Let it go among us to, to those that have yet to hear the gospel. Jesus is alive. Amen? And so our lives should testify that he is alive, that he is still seeking and saving the lost, that he is still sanctifying, that he is still in the miracle working business, and that our lives are a testimony to that miracle still makes dead things live again. Oh, for us to be a church like that, a church like that of Thessalonica, who would overflow with the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation. God is not done with you, church. He's not. He's not here for, for us to just 
gather once a week and be content. God is not done with you. God has situated us within a region, within a people who don't know him. Where the vast majority of people have no saving faith. The vast majority of people don't even have religious beliefs. Just nothing is what they would claim. And God has situated us here. These are the people waiting to hear a message. Waiting to hear testimony that there's a God who loves them. That there is a God who transforms. That there is a God of power who takes our mess and does something with it. They're waiting to hear that. And so may we not be satisfied with a dead, dry, heartless faith. Let us only be satisfied with a faith that is transformative. Let a sound go forth from among these people. Plattsburgh, the North Country, and beyond, that our God is alive and not dead. Amen? I want you all to stand with me. I read this passage many times, and it's, it's one of those passages that just gets me fired up. As the worship team comes, I, I want you all to close your eyes. And I want to read Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10. And I want you to try to envision the scene. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. He said of our valley, the Champagne Valley. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. There was no life in them, nothing redeeming. And he asked me, God asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy through the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Amen. As we survey the world around us it's dry, it's dead it's full of bones and God has called the church 
to speak the word of the Lord through that valley and says, dry bones come alive. Our lives are to be lived in light of the gospel of Jesus. We are to give God our all. And these bones live in Plattsburgh in the North Country. Yes. Yes. Let's pray together. God, we need you. God, it's not by our own power, it's not by our own might, but it's only by your Spirit. within us. Now maybe this morning as we're, we're thinking about this, as we're contemplating your word, we're seeing that we haven't surrendered all. Now let us feel your grace and your mercy this morning. Let us hear the sound of the Lord. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. Thank you.